Morning. Hey, good morning. Uh, my name is Caleb, and I am from Christ Church in Federal Way. Uh, it is a pleasure to be with you guys this morning. I, uh, we are a non-denominational church uh, in Federal Way, but we, we call ourselves kind of like a, a secret Baptist church, a disguised uh, Baptist church. So I'm really happy to be with you. We care deeply about the Word of God, the authority of Scripture, the inerrancy of God's Word, and want to preach faithfully from it. Uh, and so I want to start off by praying this morning and then just jumping straight into the book of Colossians, which uh, I hope we're studying, right? Book of Colossians. Uh, and continuing on, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day, God. Thank you that we can assemble together and worship your name. I pray, God, that you would work in our hearts mightily this morning and that we would turn to you. God, that we would be convicted of, of sin that might be in our lives. And God, for those of us who need to be comforted by your Spirit, God, that we'd be comforted. I pray, Lord, that you'd work in me and that you would speak and that you would be heard this morning and your word would be heard. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. I, uh, let's turn now to the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This morning, I want to talk uh, about contending for the church and uh, to really just share about what that looks like as a believer, as a, as a member of a local church, as someone who, who looks to the, the church being the bride, which we just sang about, and, and, and share about that this morning. So turn your Bibles, if you haven't already, Colossians 2, 1 through 5. Let's read together. Uh, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, this is an interesting passage, and so uh, I, I'm guessing that you've walked through some of the background of the book of Colossians, and knowing that you guys are exegetical preaching church, you, know, you might have started Colossians 1, you know, in 2020, I don't know. Uh, maybe you moved all the way to this point uh, and taken it nice and slow. But Colossians 2, 1 through 5 is a pivotal shift in the book, and so I think it'd be important for us to bring up some of the background and to remember exactly who Paul is writing to in this passage. So first of all, we, we know that the based upon the name and where, what Paul says, that Paul writes this, book, this letter from prison in Rome. And he wrote it to Colossae, which is a very unique area. And he had actually never been to this place, but hearing about Colossae and learning about it from other people, uh, he really had a deep heart and care 
for the church. So Colossae was like an interesting place. It was a trading town in between kind of Greece and Rome and then the Jewish world, Israel, and the east. Okay, so it's in between this whole area and it was a trading city. And, and so people would come through and they'd pass through Colossae and they'd bring different ideas and wisdom and knowledge and ideas and philosophies. And, and they'd come through this city and all these different ideas were, were, were flourishing in these areas, if you would call it that. And, and it was a very unique area. And so the, one of the purposes that Paul has in writing this book is to combat the philosophies of the day and to encourage the church. And is that not very important for us today, to combat the philosophies of our day and to learn about who is Jesus and mainly the supremacy of Christ in all things? The supremacy of Christ in all things. And so two of the main things that he's trying to address, this is important for us in this passage, is one, something called Gnosticism, if, we, if you guys have talked about that at all. And Gnosticism, just to bring us up to speed, was a philosophical school of thought that was kind of dualistic. And now I have a background, I have a degree in philosophy from actually a secular university, so I know a little bit about dualism, which is the idea that matter and mind are separate, and they actually believed that, and, and and not only that, but they believed that Jesus himself was mostly spirit and not flesh. So he was maybe not truly God, or, or sorry, he was truly God, but maybe not truly man. And they were starting to distort some of these concepts, and they were bringing even Greek philosophical dualism into their understanding uh, of the gospel. They also, and this is going to be important for unlocking this text, understanding what's happening, Gnostics were seeking after higher or secret knowledge. And they thought that salvation was even something that was gained through learning, through knowledge, through secret information. And, and some of the Hellenistic Jews, even who lived in this area, combined some of the Jewish customs, like uh, wisdom literature, Jewish customs and the law, with Greek and Roman philosophy, thus distorting the gospel entirely. And so this is one of the biggest uh, ideas that's in, at this time. And the other was these, was these Jewish religious legalists who were trying to get all the people to stop doing all these different things with, with uh, philosophy and, and, the, and the Greek culture and Roman culture and be strictly focused on obeying the law. They were like, you have to obey all of the law, and even if you get saved, you have to still obey some of the customs. And so both these things are just attacking the church on, on both sides. And, and when you try, and we, what we know is when you try to get people to combine the philosophies of the day with the truth of the gospel, you will always end up with works-based religion. You always end up with this distorted gospel based on people, how people act and what they do and not based upon what we just sang about. Grace. And grace unmeasured, grace free, grace from Christ. Now, a lot of people will break up the book of Colossians and they'll put kind of uh, Colossians 1.1 1, 1, all the way to like 2.7 or 2.10. And so it's kind of a, this unique part where we're at the end of a thought. And, and it's a very important thought. So if you look down your Bibles, we're going to be addressing a couple of these things because they tie into the passage. In Colossians, if you look just to the left, Colossians 1.28, it says this. Him, being Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom 
that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, or with, yeah, with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I think this is what was preached last week, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. And then he transitions into 2.1. I want you to know how great a struggle, use that same word, con, or, or means contending or struggle, I have for you. And then if we look down in Colossians 2, 6 through 10, he says, therefore, which is a big transition statement here in this book, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, tying all these things together, he's talking about growing in maturity, struggling for the people in, in Colossae and Laodicea, and then ultimately in Colossians 2, 6 through 10, he's going to talk about the fullness of Christ, and he, and he wants them to be rooted and built up and established in the faith. And that is what my, my prayer is for us this morning, that we would be able to contend for the bride of Christ, contend for the body. Let me ask you a question of us this morning is how are you doing at contending for the big C church? How are you doing contending for Eastridge? Are you, are you, are you fighting for it? Are you, are you trying to contend and struggle in, in certain of these aspects which we'll talk about this morning? So think about that question as we work through this text. Colossians 2.1 For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. So what is this struggle? Now, I don't know if any of you guys are in the military or were in the military. Uh, I, I was not, but, but Paul, interestingly here, uses three military terms in just a few sentences. Three military terms, uh, and this idea of struggle, and then having good order and firmness of faith that we see in 2.5, and he uses these military fighting, contesting type terms. I don't think that's a mistake, because as we know, when the philosophies of the day, when the culture presses in, when things change, we have to actually stand in kind of a military type of way in an athletic type of way, a contest, a fight, a struggle. Do you guys not feel this? And, and so Paul, Paul hasn't met them, but he knows that he's, or he's struggling for them still. And that struggle, as we can tell from, from t- the chapter one that we've seen and talking about maturity and, pr- and prayer, uh, involves two things I want to say. And the first one is prayer. That, that we need to contend for our church in prayer. His is a struggle of prayer and a deep desire to equip saints to maturity. Now, why do you think that? You know, the prayer is not even mentioned specifically uh, in this particular passage. Well, one, in Colossians 1.3, he says, we always thank God, always. Uh, always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, when we pray for you. And then just a few verses later, he says, and so from the day we heard, we, first time I heard about you guys, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He, he is contending for the church of Colossae, for Laodicea, in prayer. Prayer is hard, is it not? Like, it seems so simple that you just pray to God. It's not, you know, it, maybe it doesn't take that much time, but it is difficult. It is, if you will, 
a, a struggle. You, you have to contend to pray. You have to fight to pray. Prayer is a battle. And, and we need to be praying for our church. We need to be praying for the leaders of our church. Do you pray for the leaders of your church? 1 Timothy 2 um, says this, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. So we get that. But also for, for kings and those who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Hebrews 13, 17 talks about obeying your leaders and submitting to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Did you know that the, the pastors and elders of this church have to give an account before God and how they care and steward for this church? Pray for them. Contend for this church here and now because it's not a mistake that any of you are here. It's not a mistake that you either, or if you call this your church as a member. There, there is nothing. We need to contend for the big C church and, and, and the gospel being spread. But we also need to contend for our local church in prayer. The other thing that Paul is trying to get at here with this struggle that he has for them is, is contending is maturity. And he says it, I mean, in, in 125, he talks about, uh, he, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me to make the word of God fully known. Uh, he wants to warn and teach everyone that they may present everyone mature in Christ. He talks more about maturity through the rest of the book, as we'll see in the book of Colossians. Are you growing in, in wisdom, in knowledge, in maturity? Now, if you're anything like me, and, and maybe or you grew up in the church, or you know the Bible, what you might think is this. You start looking around, and you're like, I'm pretty mature. <laughs> Right? Like, I, I know this, I know that, you know, maybe I, I got a citation award, right? Like, who are these bums sitting next to me? They don't have citation awards from Awana. Uh, and you just, and you feel good about yourself, kind of puffed up, and you feel like that's maturity. Can I say this? Maturity is not knowledge. Maturity is not information about God. Or maybe to say it a different way. The devil knows way more about God than you do. Is he mature in Christ? He knows the books of the Bible. He probably knows some of the more verses of Scripture memorized than we do. But he's not mature in Christ. So what is he talking about here? Because some of us, we think we get kind of puffed up and we think we're mature when in reality we're not. All, it, almost all, the negative comments of Jesus about the Pharisees is calling them what? Hypocrites. Hypocrites. They do not practice what they preach. Just read all, any of Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. May we not be puffed up with information and think of ourselves as mature. But we're also supposed to present people mature. We're supposed to contend for, for maturity, as I, I'm saying here. He even says here something about knowledge, something about wisdom, uh, teaching people these things so we can present them mature. So what is he talking about? Well, I think that Ephesians, which is kind of a, a sister uh, letter to this book, Philippians, Ephesians, Philemon, are very similar to Colossians, gives us some insight. Ephesians 4, 12 through 13 says this, 
Well, first he, he explains that he's given all these people, the apostles and, and preachers and teachers. And then in 4.12 he says, to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity or mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, if you didn't catch that there, he says all these people, the, the, the pastors and the apostles and people who are preaching and teaching and doing all these things, they are to do what? Equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, that might be a little counterintuitive to, to some of us, or, or maybe we haven't thought of it that way. Because if, if we're reading this correctly, that the, the elders and the pastor's job is to equip us, you, to do the work of ministry. Like, it's not supposed to be like, hey, I brought my friend. Can you talk to them about the gospel and disciple them, pastor, whatever? No. It is the job of the church and the leaders is to equip the people, the saints, to do the work of ministry, which is the building up of the body of Christ. And when, when it, there is worked perfectly, we're building into people, we're discipling people to go, to be equipped, and to share the gospel, and then to make more disciples in this reciprocal process, and that is building maturity. To maturity and the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So maybe to say, ask it more simply, is in your contending for maturity, you're looking around the church and, and, and thinking about growing it and growing it in maturity. Are you making disciples? Are you, are you building up disciples, the young men and women in this church who need to be discipled, who need to be brought up in the understanding of, of the faith? Are you equipping them for the work of ministry? Are you discipling somebody? Can you, can you point to somebody and say, this person I am discipling, I am, I am helping to grow in their understanding of Christ, or, or, and would they, <laughs> a hypothetical situation, would they also say, yeah, he is, or would be like, no, he's not doing that. Like, would they even recognize that? Because we should be growing our people, contending for maturity, building up the body of Christ. Now, if this sounds, if have, if we, we just read Colossians 2. And if you see, it actually rings very similar in what it says here. So if you're still looking at Colossians 2, 1, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. And then in verse 2, he says, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Our third point for us that we need to be contending for in the church is to contend for unity. Contend for unity. He says, have their hearts be encouraged. I love this, this imagery. Being knit together in love. That their heart may, hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love. That word encourage is actually the same word that the Bible uses of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. To, to come alongside, to be an advocate. And it's a metaphor even uh, in the Roman legal system at this time is the concept of a defense lawyer. To come alongside, to encourage, to, to be unified. What does it look like in, in your life? I know we all have different situations in life and different things going on, but what does it look like 
for you to be aligned and unified in this church. We're called to do it. We're called to preserve unity and do everything we can to maintain the bond of peace. Are we doing that with the people around us? Encouraging them and, and thereby being knit together. They kind of go hand in hand. Um, if you look just maybe on the next page or, or uh, yeah, wherever it is in your Bible, Colossians 3 actually gives a very nice description of this. Colossians 3, 12 through 15, which you guys will get to next year, right? Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, put, he says, uh, 3.12 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. It's almost like it's the same book, right? Just talking about this, this idea of, of being knit together in love and gives us the full description here just uh, a little bit later in this letter. Being knit, being knit together in love that Christ would rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body. Are we contending for unity? And can we be honest? Like, like we're all different, okay? <laughs> like, it is hard to contend for unity, it's like you have different personalities and, and uh, we're all sinners in the same room. You put us all together and it's like, have unity. It's like, it's kind of hard. Like, uh, it, it's difficult to do that. That takes, that's why I, I like this word contending. I like this word struggling because you have to. If any of you have ever been on a sports team, I grew up playing uh, soccer for like 20-something years and a bunch of different other sports. I really just love sports in general. And, and when you're on a team sport, there's a lot of contending especially on, a, on a, a guy's sport where everyone's like yelling at each other and people are cussing at each other because it's just like, that's just the brotherly. You cuss at each other and then someone like punches you and then all of a sudden you're best friends. It's just like how those team sports usually work when you're uh, doing stuff. But that contending, that athletic, that military type word, that's what it takes. Man, that's what it, that's what it takes to, to pray. That's what it takes to have unity. And, and we actually have to fight for that. And so it always, you know, is, is annoying or perturbs me when people are like, oh, they hurt my feelings, so I left the church. <laughs> like, really? Well, you, you, you probably hurt someone else's feelings, like, in that next church, and they left the church because it's just going to happen. And, and we know that. And so fighting for unity and to forgive one another and to, to try to maintain the unity of the bond of peace with one another is difficult. But we're called to do it. We're called to abide together in harmony. The last point here is that we need to contend for truth. Contend for truth. All of these concepts here in verses 2, 3, 4, 5, talking about the, re- the riches of full assurance of understanding. And then he says, uh, or, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then he says, I say this in order that no one may, my my verse says, delude you with plausible arguments. Uh, Another way, maybe your your verse says, persuasive speech. Or some of the uh, more paragraphic versions might say something like fancy talk. Uh, And and the idea is, is actually that, that you use clever words 
to, to delude you or to trick you into understanding something that's not true. And, and if we we're going to be honest, I think there's a lot of knowledge or ideas in our, our world. And if, in fact, I think if we have a bigger problem, it's not we don't have enough knowledge, but we have too much. And, and people are hesitant to say things like, we can have full assurance, 100% certainty. Or to say things like, this is absolute truth. Or, you know, a big one that we see a lot is to say that someone else's idea or someone else's religion is false, deceitful, empty. That is very difficult for many people these days. And, and if maybe, uh, I mean, there's other times in history probably as well, but very important time in history that we get to say the truth is this. That God's word is true. When, when Paul says we have full assurance of understanding, he's also not, he's aware that people act like this. I mean, this is the philosophy, this is the Socrates, the Plato, the Aristotles of the day are, are, are influencing this culture. Like he knows what subjective arguments and, and objective, or subjective good and all that kind of stuff is because it's in his culture. And so when he says things like full assurance, it's a straight shot at the Gnostics. It's a straight shot at the people who think, well, actually, we, don't, we can't know that. Or he says, you have full assurance of understanding and knowledge. What, you know what it's a shot at? It's a shot at them trying to pursue higher knowledge. He, he, he knows who he's talking to. The false teachers were attempting to make Christianity palatable, understandable, relevant in Greek society. Do not the same motives draw today, draw people today to do the same? Modern heretics, modern people who are taking different concepts from different religions and throwing it all into a bag and just hoping it works? Let God's word be true and every man a liar. We need to contend for truth. And the mystery, which was probably talked about a little bit last week, but the mystery is Christ in us the hope of glory. Mentioned in 126, the full assurance of understanding. Okay? And, and so, some of the mystery that he ha- has, which is also very important to this book, is that, the, and Ephesians talks about this, he's, he says in Ephesians 3.6, that the mystery is that through the gospel the, of the, or the Gentiles are heirs together in Israel. So he also wants them to know that it's not some separate thing, that these aren't just a Jewish concept. This isn't just a Jewish thing. This is actually for everybody. And because the Gnostics are searching for this mysterious and secret knowledge is whatever, he, he comes in and says, you don't want to know what the secret knowledge is? You want to know what the mystery is? The mystery is that you can have full assurance, full wisdom, full understanding in Christ. And he brings it home. He brings it home with this whole concept. He's like, don't get messed up and be persuaded by this fancy talk and fancy Socratic methods and all these different things. He says, though I'm absent, verse 5, I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order, that military term, and firmness of your faith. Your good order and firmness of your faith. He wants to encourage them to see this. Now, I just want to close our time because I, I, you know, it's, not, it's impossible to, to talk about all these different concepts, but I wanted to close our time by looking at a couple ideas because we might think, oh, that's nice, Caleb, but you know, thanks for teaching me about a word Gnosticism or whatever and, and you know, religious legalism in the first century. That doesn't really apply to me. 
But I actually think this is incredibly important for us today because Gnosticism is everywhere in our culture. Religious legalism is everywhere in our culture. And you could even pit them too uh, up as, as huge uh, influences, factors in, in hurting Christianity today. And so we'll talk, you guys will probably talk about this uh, next week, but in verse 8, look down, it says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So I just want to take a little, a, a little bit of time and say, here are some ways that we, can, we see present-day Gnosticism and religious legalism that we need to contend against. Present-day Gnosticism and religious legalism. One of the things that you see in Gnosticism, I just have, I have three in each, is Gnosticism is that people are searching for truth, but no one wants to say what truth is. Isn't that funny? Isn't that like everyone wants to know what is true, but they don't want to say anything is actually absolutely true. Everyone has their own truth, and it's destroying even a concept or even a conversation about what is true. So what do you do with something where Jesus is, is the truth? What do we do with that? Well, we have to help people to see it and to understand that. And, 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 and worrisomely, is that a word, uh, for, for the church is that people are using these types of ideas as well to invade the church and to, and to really ask questions like, is that really what the Bible means when it says? Or, let's go further, is that what God really said? Is that not the first lie of all of humanity? Did God really say that you cannot eat the fruit? And it goes, it's a complete cycle to today where now it's like, is that actually true? Oh, that's nice. That's true for you. And it's invading our, our churches. Furthermore, as people want secret knowledge, like don't they, everyone wants to know like, hey, how do you lose 100 pounds in five days? You're like, oh, secret knowledge. Uh, or the special diet and, and secret to living longer. Here's how you make more money, retire early, make wealth, whatever it is. Everyone wants to know the secret and they want to like know their buddy, their, my, my friend knows all this, whatever. You just give them a call and, and, and the, <laughs> that's not the, the, or that's a problem and, and people have a difficulty when you start talking about the truth. Or that Christ is the full assurance, full wisdom, and full knowledge. And so we have to combat the concepts of that, but also point to the secret knowledge of the gospel, right? Which is also a mystery in and of itself, and yet fully revealed. Lastly, is that people think, well, I already kind of got to this uh, a little ahead of time, but people think that God's word is suggestive, not imperative. So anytime someone brings up uh, something from Scripture, they just think that, well, you know, there's different interpretations about that. So, you know, we'll never know. We need to know God's Word and to be passing down God's Word and truth so that people know it and they can they explain it and understand it. Like, I'm all about uh, learning uh, more about God's Word and learning about or apologetics and growing in these types of things. Or I saw you guys were uh, studying hermeneutics and whatever. But the important point is that we are using those things maturely, wisely to impact culture and to care for people, to share the gospel with the lost. 
we already know some of the problems with religious legalism, right? And how it invades the church. When you, when you try to combine any of these things, we, the, the natural tendency of man is to make the gospel about doing stuff instead about God's grace. By grace, we have been saved through faith. And I think that one of the difficult parts of even uh, some things that are within the church, actually, too, is that a lot of us know about God, but we don't want to actually obey his commands. We, we know about God, but we don't mind sinning. And, and we are like uh, uh, the, the parable of the man who took the money that, that Jesus shares and then just hides it. We've been given the gift of the gospel. We've been given all these things through, through Christ and God's spirit and, and we just hide what we have and we don't actually use it to obey God's commands, to love people and to share the gospel. And that might be on our hearts this morning. We have to actually go out and recognize that in ourselves and do it. And the other thing I see and I fear, I don't know about how this has affected your guys' church, but is there's a lot in religious legalism, there's a lot of fear a lot of isolation to say, you know what? I want to run away from the difficulties of what we have in the culture. I want to run away from hard times and I want to go hide with my family and kind of have a monastic understanding in the name of holiness and separation and preserving my family and whatever. We're just going to hide. God has us here for a reason. You are in this room in, in Washington at this time for a reason, and God has you here. And he wants you, if he hasn't taken you home yet, if you thought about this, if he hasn't beamed you up, Scotty, right, yet, then he desires for you to be here for something. And, he's already, and then you're like, okay, well, what is that, Caleb? You already know what that is. It's the mission that he's given all of us, the great commission to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And, and that's, on, that's on our hearts, that's, that's in us. And so when we, when we try to answer those fears and, and run away and hide and just be like, I'll make it and then I'll retire and then I'll die. Like, what, what are we doing? Or are, that, that isolationist concept is running away and trying to protect ourselves instead of realizing that God has us here for a reason. So let's preach the gospel faithfully and contend for truth. Now, one of the beautiful lines, I keep referencing the music because it, a lot of it was tied to this, but one of the lines that is talked about is that God's grace helps us to do what is right. And with this, you, you might feel like, oh man, prayer, that's a hard one. But, you know, growing in the Bible, I, I have so much to do anyway. Like I, you know, and you just feel like, how, how do I do this? It, it's so difficult. But one of the, that, the lines is that God helps us in these things. By the grace of God, he answers them. Like, we need to help people see that Jesus is the answer to all of these problems. The, all, you know, it might be, might be fearful of talking about Gnosticism and present-day religious legalism, but Jesus is the answer to it. Well, I mean, we just read through, I, I know you all did, is read through Colossians 1, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. For by him all things were created in him, or in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
He is the answer to the mystery. Jesus is the one who gives wisdom and understanding and, the faithful, and is faithful to deliver us as he is the full assurance of salvation. Jesus is the answer to uh, religious legalism. Colossians 1.19-20 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to d- dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And that includes Jews and Gentiles. He is the answer to that. He is the grace that was given to us so that we do not need to try to work for our salvation, but we do good works because we are saved. The imperatives are scri- of Scripture are only able to be obeyed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Only when we have Christ and we cling to him can we do what Colossians 3.10 says, which is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and bear fruit in our good works. We need to recognize that because it's difficult to contend in prayer. It's difficult to see the world and how things are changing and what is happening, but we know that we have one thing and that is Christ. He is the one who intercedes for us in prayer so we can contend in prayer. He is the one who makes us mature because he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the one who creates unity and makes unity. And lastly, Christ is the truth that sets us free. For in him all things were created. He is before all things and in all things, or before all things and in him all things hold together, including truth. We can only contend for the church with the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the reliance upon his word. And I, and I pray that we, we take that seriously. I, I tried to make it my, my goal this past week as I read this passage, the struggle that he has for this church that he's never even been to and, and thinking about. And I was thinking, you know what? I've never been to Eastridge. I'm going to commit a ton of time this week to pray for your church and to really think and pray for your leaders and pray for your elders and try to contend and struggle for this church. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know if I know any of you. Maybe I do, I don't know. But I, I, and that was my desire this week is to come and to bring that and to pray for you and to struggle on, on that behalf in the same way that Paul did and, and hope and pray that God would work in this church to make us all mature in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and for your word. We come before you humbly and and pray, God, that you would work mightily within us. And I pray, God, that as you do, we would be able to honor you in all things. Thank you for giving us your son and for the amazing riches that come with that, the riches of full assurance of our faith. And I pray that you'd be with us, that you'd comfort us, and, and, and this morning, if, if, if we're struggling, God, that we'd be able to come forward and even confess those things. And God, I just thank you so much for your word, and I pray all these things in your name. Amen.